You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Uh, today, I'm joined by somebody I've been wanting to talk to for quite a while, Dr. Ethan Rousseau. Uh, thank you, Ethan, for being willing to take the time to sit down with me today. Thank you. Yeah, so um, you know, I, I almost struggle to um, figure out how to introduce you because there's so many different angles I could take. You were um, involved at one point in um, getting Sativex going and approved is that right sure yeah for 11 years i uh, worked for gw pharmaceuticals as senior medical advisor and uh, uh, medical monitor study physician in development of sativex and epidiolex yeah and then you also on the side are involved in a lot of um, different types of broader research and education Sure. I've been involved in cannabis and cannabinoid research for 23 years. Yeah, quite a quite a record. And some of the some of the review papers that you've written um, have been critical tools in the education work that I do. Like Taming THC is now pretty much a classic. And um, there was a recent one you did too, the uh, No Strain No Gain uh, review paper about um, you know the the complex, you know, what we call the entourage effects, some people call matrix effects, you know, whatever. Right. But um, um, you've, in my opinion, you've, you've done some really good work summarizing relatively complex ideas that are digestible to a broader audience. Well, I hope so. One of the big issues right now is trying to sort out whether uh, people should have single compounds like single cannabinoids versus whole plant extracts. And I'm clearly in the latter camp. Yeah. Uh, for the synergy, the boosting effect that uh, these provide over and above the kinds of effects that we can get with single compounds. Yeah, a lot of um, doctors and nurses that I've spoken to that are doing clinical work with cannabis products in the United States, a lot of them, um, it's been a pretty consistent message that um, they've said at this point they tend to only want to work with... Um, they term broader spectrum extracts of cannabis, usually like ethanol sourced um, that maintain a wide diversity of phytochemistry. And what they tell me and what I'm interested to talk to you about is what research data we have to, to kind of um, support it. But um, they're able to get better outcomes at lower dosages with fewer side effects. Sure. Well, uh, we can illustrate this by going back a little bit historically in 1985, uh, synthetic THC as Marinol was approved by the FDA. The thought uh, among certain people at the time was this would obviate the need for cannabis treatment right. uh, for medical conditions. Instead, what we got was a drug that is very poorly tolerated <laughs> um, and uh, gained no traction uh, in the marketplace. THC by itself is a very disorienting drug. People tend to be dysphoric, unhappy, rather than euphoric. Uh, even people who are accustomed to cannabis find THC in pure form a very difficult drug to tolerate. Mm -hmm. and very few people remain on it for any length of time. And when people have had the opportunity to compare, almost invariably, they prefer herbal forms of cannabis. 
Yeah, that's um, that's been my experience too. I have a good friend of mine that, um, funny enough, to treat schizophrenia got approved for Marinol, um, which is sort of strange in one in one sense to me. But um, he um, reported similarly that he had some success with herbal cannabis controlling certain uh, positive symptoms right. that he was dealing with, and um, the Marinol just didn't do anything that the herbal cannabis did other than making him feel uncomfortable, like physically um, unsettled is, is what he reported. And that's the only person that I personally know that has been on a Marinol prescription. Sure. Uh, beyond that, we have now a lot of evidence, both laboratory and clinical, that uh, much better results accrue when we're dealing with complex mixtures from mm -hmm. cannabis extracts as opposed to pure compounds. A recent illustration was uh, a, uh, an article from Spain, Blasco Benitez et al., uh, in which they were looking effects, at effects on cancer, both in cell culture and in animals, uh, comparing pure THC, with, which worked to some extent uh, in treating the cancers. Uh, but in comparison to a cannabis extract, there was much, much greater activity uh, with very salient, statistically significant differences. Right, yeah. I, I remember there was some paper I read um, that was looking at, um, was it uh, TNF-alpha levels in mice that was looking at... Um, I, I don't remember the actual type of botanical extract that they used from cannabis, but they were trying to mm -hmm. compare to isolate and look at dose response curves, sure. essentially. Yeah. Another good example um, was there was a paper by Pamplona in 2018 uh, that compared pure CBD uh, as would be in epidiolects to the results that people got with uh, CBD predominant mm -hmm. cannabis extracts, what they found was equal efficacy, but with the uh, cannabis extracts, the doses were about in a, on average 22% of what was wow. required with pure CBD. So instead of 1500 milligrams a day, <laughs> perhaps 300 milligrams uh, would be enough uh, of the corresponding extract um, so that this can uh, represent a substantial savings in cost um, additionally with the high doses of pure cbd there is the possibility of drug drug interaction yeah. particularly sedation with some of the drugs that are used in epilepsy treatment yeah and i know there's some concern lately too and there's controversy of controversy over some of it but about the liver toxicity of high doses of CBD as well? Well, I, I think that's a blind alley to be truthful. Mm. Obviously, a uh, lower dose would be better, but um, the liver issues are mainly related to elevations of liver function tests. Mm -hmm. And this is in uh, generally children uh, who are in polypharmacy with a number of drugs, particularly uh, valproic acid, which is well known for being a bad actor in terms of uh, LFT elevation. Mm. Um, so my strong suspicion is that's related to polypharmacy, multiple drugs rather than a specific effect of cannabidiol. Yeah, that's a that's an extremely good point to make. Um, 
is that the the risks, contraindications, and everything are very different circumstance to circumstance depending on what a patient is is taking. And, sure. I, and I would assume not just the other medicines they're taking, but even possibly their diet, because I know there are different right. dietary elements that can influence. Yeah, I would just add the point that I've seen a lot of people conflate, even in uh, presentations at conferences, conflate the side effect profile of pure CBD at high dosage mm -hmm. to CBD in general, and that's not a fair comparison. Um, I would uh, say that cannabidiol, uh, despite its many complex mechanisms of action, is an extremely safe drug with very few adverse events. Yeah, and what... Uh I mean, there's a tidal wave of research kind of coming out now, now that, um, I mean, especially now that the farm bill's passed, there are a lot of universities now ramping up to study CBD and hemp extracts and, um, and, and in general with legalization movements happening across the world, there are more researchers feeling more comfortable taking on this work. But, um, in your opinion, where does the research, particularly around CBD and CBD extracts, need to go, um, I guess, to um, elucidate some of those nuances that can help um, particularly physicians understand uh, what they're dealing with and if they have patients that are coming to them telling them they're using different types of CBD products? Yeah. You know? Well, first and foremost uh, is an issue of the preparation. Mm -hmm. Right now, it's sort of the Wild West out there. Uh, with online cannabidiol products. Um, I can't vouch for the <laughs> utility or safety of any preparation without a certificate of analysis. And yeah. I want to know exactly what's in it, not just the cannabidiol content, but other cannabinoids, the terpenoid content. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to see evidence that it's safe, that there's no pesticide residue microbiological contamination or heavy metal contamination mm -hmm. and beyond that i just won't comment and i would urge uh, consumers to be extremely diligent in trying to acquire that information my bias is that that information should be available for every product rather, yeah. whether medical or recreational at point of sale so that's first and foremost beyond that um it really is a matter of what's in it. So mm -hmm. we can have cannabidiol, but uh, there's almost nothing that cannabidiol does that will not be enhanced by having at least a, a tiny amount of THC mm -hmm. on board at all. Uh, it really synergizes. Uh, these normally occur together in the plant. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it sounds corny, but that's the way nature intended it. And that's what usually works best medically. The effects of a given preparation are going to depend on those components. And uh, we really can fine tune things in terms of applicability uh, to produce synergies towards treatment of specific disorders. Mm -hmm. What I mean is, for example, um, if we want to treat a mood disorder such as anxiety, we can look for possible synergy between cannabidiol, which has a proven effect at a certain dosage, mm -hmm. plus uh, an additional component such as linalool, mm -hmm. which is uh, a common component uh, terpenoid that's also uh, in lavender, for mm -hmm. example, and is well known traditionally as 
uh, something that uh, produces a calming anti-anxiety effect. Uh, so that's just one illustration. Uh, you know, what I'd like to see is that uh, there's a greater appreciation of these nuances uh, of how cannabis can be tuned to the individual need. Yeah, and uh, something I'm interested in too that segues into another thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is the endocannabinoid system, is um, I'm interested to see research that goes into how to characterize the endocannabinoid system tone more. I think that's really fascinating. Sure. Well, that's a tough one. Yeah. First, let's define some terms. Yeah. Uh, the endocannabinoid system is the master homeostatic right. regulator of physiology. What does that mean? Well, physiology is how things work in the body. On um, Generally, uh, you need a certain level of activity, neither too high nor mm -hmm. too low. And that's precisely what the endocannabinoid system does, is try and keep things in happy balance. Uh, so if a system is overactive, it tends to bring it down. If it's underactive, to bring mm -hmm. it up. This works through complex mechanisms. We have endogenous chemicals within called endocannabinoids, uh, specifically 2-arachidonoglycerol, 2-AG for short, and anandamide. Anandamide in particular closely resembles THC. Both are partial agonists mm -hmm. at uh, the CB1 receptor, the main psychoactive receptor in the brain and elsewhere throughout the body. Um, and what this does at the brain level is uh, actually reduce the release of neurotransmitters. So if we have a glutamate uh, neuron mm -hmm. uh, that's stimulatory, the reduction in the release of glutamate will lower that activity. Good example of why that's important is, uh, well, we'll give two. Glutamate um, activity tends to be excessive in neuropathic pain, mm -hmm. nerve-based pain. So if we have a person with chronic neuropathic pain, um, we can either raise their anandamide level or supply exogenous THC and bring that glutamate level down. And uh, that's going to help with pain. Similarly, in uh, brain injury, whether it be trauma, uh, stroke, or things of that sort, we get an excessive release of glutamate. It can be so bad uh, there can be so much glutamate that it produces an excitotoxicity mm -hmm. that the cells actually stimulate themselves to death. Uh, we have situations in which people suffer a head injury. Um, they might seem okay briefly and then rapidly deteriorate over 48 hours. And some of that effect is from this excitotoxicity from glutamate. If we're able to supply drugs like cannabidiol or THC, early enough, uh, some of that can be prevented and uh, have a much better result mm -hmm. clinically. Um, so those would be examples. Um, going back to endocannabinoid tone. Endocannabinoid tone is uh, an important concept, but we don't have good ways of mm -hmm. measuring it. Right. Um, the three important aspects are how much of the endocannabinoids are present. Second is, what's the activity of the receptors? Mm -hmm. If someone is using THC at high doses recreationally, the receptor number will actually go down. Mm -hmm. It's the brain and body's way of trying to keep things on an even keel. 
So the receptors become inactive. When they stop, they'll reactivate. Um, so there is the number and status of the receptors. There is the amount of the endocannabinoids. And the third part is what is the activity of the enzymes that make the endocannabinoids and break them down. Um, so unfortunately, we don't have ways of measuring this directly uh, except with invasive techniques. Mm -hmm such as doing a lumbar puncture or yep. spinal tap to measure anandamide levels. But that's invasive. It's not something you can do on an experimental basis mm -hmm. uh, with most uh, ethics committees, for example. <laughs> yeah. uh, ideally, in the future, we would have scans, non-invasive methods of trying to assess endocannabinoid tone. But that's a dream for the future right now. Right, yeah. and And... Measuring the endocannabinoids, isn't it a little complicated, too, because they're produced on demand? It's not like they're stored in vesicles like a lot of neurotransmitters are. Yeah, that's exactly right. So these are in a constant state of flux. They're just not there for any period of time. Similarly, uh, they're a very hard thing to study. Um, anandamide is rapidly broken down in the, the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. um, so when we are looking at serum levels, which may or may not reflect what's going on in the brain, the samples often have to be frozen in liquid mm -hmm. nitrogen uh, and then be transported to a specialty lab. This is not something where you can go into your local mm -hmm. hospital and get your blood drawn and see what your status is. Right. Uh, we're talking some very sophisticated science here. Yeah. And um, another thing that comes to mind when I think about the complexities of trying to measure the endocannabinoid system tone is that the endocannabinoid system is not just CB1 receptors and CB2 receptors. It's, it's a really complicated system that overlaps with a lot of other um, physiological systems and other um, different types of uh, receptors that would normally be associated with other, other systems in the body. Right. Well, yeah, no, it's a broadening concept. Um, I asked my friend and colleague Vincenzo De Marzo mm -hmm. whether he now would consider the serotonin 1A receptor mm -hmm. part of the endocannabinoid system. And his, he didn't hesitate. He said, yes. How this comes into play is uh, cannabidiol uh, was shown by uh, my team at the University of Montana back in 2005 uh, to be, cannabidiol is a serotonin 1A mm -hmm. agonist. Um, and we're finding that that mechanism explains a lot of activity of cannabidiol as well as its effect on mm -hmm. nausea, um, prevention of brain damage from uh, ammonia levels in hepatic failure mm -hmm. and a lot of other mechanisms. Another example would be cannabidiol is also an agonist, a, a stimulant on the TRPV1 mm -hmm. receptor, yeah. the same place where capsaicin works. And again, most experts consider that part of the broad concept of the endocannabinoid system. So uh, what's amazing to me at this point is for a system that's so fundamental mm -hmm. to how our bodies work, this is not, <laughs> in general, taught in medical yep. school. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Somebody can go through medical school and learn nothing about cannabis or except perhaps it's a alleged addiction potential. Uh, but unfortunately, 
Uh, it's highly likely they won't learn anything about the endocannabinoid system, despite the fact that CB1 is the most abundant <laughs> G protein coupled receptor in the brain, exceeding uh, the number of all the neurotransmitter receptors yep. put together. Uh, so obviously, it's really fundamental to how humans work. Yeah, it's it's um, ignoring that system is like having severe tunnel vision when trying to think about physiology, considering how how big of a role it is. And and when I've talked to um, other doctors that are not because I'm originally from Mississippi, so very conservative um, and much much uh, more of a deficit of understanding than you know you would find out here on the West Coast and. When I've talked to doctors about it, I've tried to use terms that they might that might help them put that into perspective. Talk about eicosanoids and G protein coupled receptors without getting into some of the vocabulary that we have, and they they can start to wrap their mind around that and around how the body processes fatty acids and how important those are for signaling and everything. But it it's true, and I haven't talked to anybody that's close to it recently about whether that's still the case. If medical schools are still ignoring. Um, you know, whether intentionally or not, um, a lot of information about the ECS. Yeah, I'm afraid that's still the case. Um, you know, there's a, quite a deficit there that I'd like to see rectified. Um, it is myopic. Uh, it's intellectually dishonest. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how much of it is born from prejudices against uh, cannabis. Yeah. Yeah. And the, you know, part, I know part of it coming from, from where I come from, there's just so much still taboo around the idea of cannabis and a lot of um, feeling that you're putting your professional reputation on the line in order to talk about it in a in a serious way. Um, well, and that's one advantage of age. I no longer care about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What are uh, so? I've got two things that came to mind when we were talking about that. One is. I wanted to come back around to the serotonin receptor concept because it's been shown that um, uh, some serotonin receptors, and maybe it's, it's the one you mentioned because sometimes I get them confused, but they're often heteromers with CB1 receptors. They often appear side by side at times and influence each other. Uh, yeah, you know, that, that has been noted in a number of experiments. And to be honest, I don't always know what the ramifications of that are. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... Um, it, it's always tough, uh, for me, I'm 67. So, you know, my basic, uh, science training was like 45 years ago and things change radically. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm like a lot of people and, uh, when, when I've got a new journal article, I think has, uh, pertinence to what I'm investigating, I may need to read it three times yep, yep. to try and get it straight. So uh, none, none of this stuff is simple. Uh, there's a problem trying to translate this into lay terms mm -hmm. because uh, the foundation is so broad uh, in the endocannabinoid system and the details uh, can be so extensive. Mm -hmm. um, it, it really defies simple explanations. and. Uh, to be fair, that makes it very tough for the average physician to be able to grab a hold of this when their schedule has them seeing a patient every yep. 15 minutes. It's just not amenable to providing 
uh, good education to the patient about anything, let alone something so complex as uh, medical treatment with cannabis or the, the endocannabinoid system. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. They have, everybody has such little amount of time and mental bandwidth um, to wrestle with much of anything that to try to tackle all this is, is definitely complicated. And something that I, I teach about is um, try to urge people to be uh, cautious when reading research and trying to um, project the clinical value of that because so much of cannabinoid research um, you know, is cell culture models and rodent models and a little bit of human clinical data. And it's all interesting and it, there's wisdom to be gleaned from all these, these different studies, but it's, you've got to be really careful. Well, yeah, let, let's use an example. And I want to go back to the hepatic damage yeah. from CBD issue. <clears throat> there was uh, an article that came out recently. It was a rodent study the doses of cannabidiol that they were using mm -hmm. purportedly uh, producing liver damage would be impossible to attain uh, in a human. And somehow this travesty passed peer review <laughs> and was widely reported uh, by the media. Uh, it has no correspondence to reality. I just wish that it had been sent to me and I would have done my best to ensure that uh, it didn't deserve publication and um, this kind of thing. Uh, unfortunately, uh, this kind of material is often produced uh, with uh, taxpayer money. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it's more than intellectually dishonest. It's downright dangerous and unethical. Yeah, and it, it just perpetuates more misunderstanding among um, not just a lay audience, but... Um, physicians and other healthcare providers that are working with patients that are reporting use and, and trying sure. to conceptualize what that means. Well, I know that I got 10 personal queries about it that mm -hmm. I had to address and dispel what are uh, just spurious rumors and um, basically propaganda. Yeah. Um, what, what would you say would be some of the more real risks, limitations, contraindications of um, herbal cannabis use and extracts, depending however you want to go with that, that you think people should know about? Well, we've got a public health crisis out there right now with um, additives in vape pens. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've got to mention that uh, it is important that people, again, apply critical thought uh, to any development like this, that actually has nothing to do with cannabis. Yeah. It has everything to, to do with additives that are toxic uh, that are put in these devices. Uh, and so it can happen with nicotine vape pens. It could happen with cannabis vape pens or whatever. Um, but I, I, I'll put the finger on the government. Um, you wouldn't have this situation if we had uh, legal commerce uh, federally mm -hmm. uh, in cannabis and had standards apply to um, any of these products uh, because this is 100% preventable. Um, 
if these things were available and regulated properly, mm-hmm. there'd be no need for kids to be going to a street corner to purchase uh, black market vape pens with dangerous ingredients. So that's first and foremost. Um, Very briefly, um, I'm not a proponent of smoking anything, particularly in a medical setting. Uh, Vaporization potentially is a safer approach, but when we're talking about medical uses of cannabis, we're almost always uh, talking about uh, chronic conditions. Mm -hmm. And in that situation, best approaches are for oral agents or uh, tinctures, say, in the mouth, uh, even. uh, And there are reasons for that. When that type of preparation is used, it's got a much longer Mm half-life. Basically, the need for more frequent dosing is limited. Often people can treat their condition with dosing two or three times a day. This offers other advantages in that there are fewer peaks and valleys of activity. Um, You avoid uh, what can happen with inhalation where there's a rapid increase in blood and brain levels that is going to uh, make a person prone to psychoactive side effects, specifically anxiety, paranoia, Mm -hmm. things of this sort that are much less likely with a slow titration, slow raising of dose, Mm -hmm with an oral agent. Um, And therefore, the risks risks of intoxication, reinforcement, uh, withdrawal, and all these other effects can be minimized. Um, Again, the ingredients are key. Mm -hmm. Uh, People need to know. uh, And that can only come through regulation because it is a situation, I can say, without a lot of fear, of contradiction that companies are not going to uh, produce lab results unless it's mandated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's all about yeah. the bottom line. And if something isn't required, uh, companies are not going to spend the money. Um, but there's a happy balance there. It has to come on the side of, of safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And that's that's uh, an area of things I've directly associated with. Spent a lot of time working in analytical labs helping them get accredited and onboard methods. And um, I've seen the response from producers that, you know, complain about, you know, the testing that they're required to do and the cost of it. And, you know, I'm always thinking about, like, what's that total cost of, you know, the few hundred dollars to a thousand dollars you might be spending on testing versus the value of the whole batch of material you have and everything. But um, it is a, a struggle, um, and even producers that say they value product quality and uh, consumer safety and everything, I, I see a lot of that go out the door really quickly um, uh, when they're allowed to kind of skirt by. It's unfortunate, um, but it is what it is. Um, what are, going back to the endocannabinoid system a bit, and we talked about a couple of things, but what are some misconceptions that you think that um, people commonly have about the endocannabinoid system? Um, I'm sure you have a few in mind. <laughs> well, the main problem, again, is ignorance, just lack of awareness. And this is across the board. It, it really, uh, man on the street probably doesn't know anything about it. But mm-hmm. again, uh, his physician won't likely either. So, uh, 
big part of my mission over the 23 years I've been doing this work has been education. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think uh, the message I'd like to impart is this is an important aspect of how we work. Uh, what can we do, um, even apart from drugs, yeah. um, to improve our endocannabinoid tone? And there's actually a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, the paramount lifestyle approaches that would affect the system would be first aerobic exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got good data, especially from animals and limited in humans that show that um, you improve your endocannabinoid tone and uh, overall well-being through aerobic activity. Uh, humans weren't designed to be sedentary mm-hmm. as is prevalent in modern society. And the other one, uh, which seems to be taking on more and more importance, is the microbiome, Mm. the bacterial content of the gut. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of the ills of modern society are nutritional in origin. We're seeing a huge increase in uh, things such as the metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes associated with obesity. Uh, Again, this is not normal uh, in human populations. In contrast, um, we're seeing a situation in which uh, the American diet in particular is Mm -hmm. pro-inflammatory as well as uh, having an improper uh, balance of nutrients, generally too much. Um, But a lot of this can be counteracted Uh, by having a better bacterial balance in the gut. And that can be attained through uh, eating more vegetables, more fiber, and particularly use of uh, probiotics Mm -hmm. and prebiotics. Um, And this can make a tremendous difference in health and regulating the endocannabinoid system. Yeah, and I was going to ask, is there any specific research that you're aware of that is currently looking at those links between the gut microbiome and cannabinoid receptor expression or endocannabinoid production? Yeah, it's a developing area. Um, There was a very interesting study uh, that was done in Canada, Clooney et al., that showed uh, that um, THC didn't uh, uh, produces uh, a better balance in the microbiome. We don't see Hmm. Uh, development of obesity in animals that are administered THC. Mm -hmm. Rather, they remain lean even in the uh, face of a high-fat diet Mm -hmm. and a genetic predisposition to that kind of problem. Uh, So it is a real developing area. Um, You know, I see that as really key and a key lifestyle approach some people can use this kind of dietary approach and um, hopefully not even need cannabis quite so much. Yeah, and uh, one thing that's exciting to me is newer research coming out that's showing how uh, different flavonoids interact with the endocannabinoid system because it it then opens this discussion up uh, much more broadly um, to talk about. I mean, and there are multiple reasons for that flavonoids are one but to talk about um diet and consumption of different types of plants and everything that are also going to be affecting um 
um, cannabinoid receptor signaling and endocannabinoid production, that sort of thing. Um, and something that excites me about cannabis in general as a natural products guy, because that's really my background doesn't come from cannabis, but I've adopted the realm of cannabis um, given what's going on these days is I like that it's kind of a springboard for people learning about other plants and you know, other concepts and <laughs> rediscovering that, oh, maybe we should be exercising and eating better. And maybe that will help medically uh, more so than, than a lot of other approaches. Um, one of the last things I'd like to get into, check our time here, we got a little bit more time. Um, going back around to your work with Sativex and looping around, I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, okay, cannabis has therapeutic value, there's research going on, it's becoming more and more accepted. Um, there's also a major push by a lot of companies right now to get cannabinoid pharmaceuticals developed. Um, so can you, and I know it can be kind of complicated, but as briefly as you feel comfortable, kind of describe to listeners what it actually takes to get a cannabis-based pharmaceutical or a cannabinoid pharmaceutical actually developed, trialed, and approved. Because um, I think that process is a little more complicated than than folks give it credit for. Uh, yeah, it sure is. Um, in most respects, the development of a cannabis-based medicine as a pharmaceutical is the same for anything else. Mm -hmm. But cannabis is a botanical, a plant-based medicine. There's still a common misconception out there that you can't make a pharmaceutical from a plant, mm -hmm. but it has been done. Um, and even though Sativex isn't available uh, in this country, it is approved in 30 other mm -hmm. countries and it passed the chemistry manufacturing control and the safety mm -hmm. uh, signals. Um, but basically what's involved um, is you have to take your preparation and show that it's safe through toxicology. This means giving large amounts, unfortunately, to rats and dogs and seeing what happens. Um, then uh, it's put through phase one in which uh, normal people get are exposed to the drug in varying amounts and you see how long it lasts in the, the body, in the blood and uh, what the reactions of people are monitoring the side effects, if any. Then uh, it goes to phase two. In this, moderate numbers of patients with a specific disease are given the drug and again, you're looking for efficacy, safety, and then the other factor is consistency. Mm -hmm. Can you show that your drug, if it's a botanical, it's going to contain many ingredients. Mm -hmm. You have to show um, consistency uh, of each component within very tight tolerances over the duration of the drug development program. The final step is phase three, in which large numbers of people with the disease are given uh, the medicine again to show safety, um, efficacy, and consistency. At a point where a drug is passed all those steps, uh, it's FDA approved, and then it takes about a year to um, designate a uh, schedule. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's a drug that has psychoactive effects, it has to be put in a schedule. Um, that uh, describes what its drug abuse liability is, whether it has addictive potential, um, how often a physician can uh, prescribe it, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, and then uh, label is developed and it goes on the market. So we're talking about generally from start to finish a seven to 10 year proposition that will cost anywhere between 700 million and $1.2 billion. Easy, right? Right, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, no problem. <laughs> but, um, so that's one aspect of cannabis as medicine. However, as we're seeing now in this country, cannabidiol has been available in various preparations um, on another level where people can access it without uh, prescription. Um, so in the future, there are going to be other cannabis-based supplements. Mm -hmm. um, these should be also subject to safety and efficacy uh, issues as yeah. well as labeling. And we've got a final uh, level or echelon of activity, which would be someone grows cannabis and may use it in a medical context. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are these three different ways of getting cannabis medicine. I think people make a mistake when they think that one level can eliminate the others, mm -hmm. much as the government thought that uh, Marinol, synthetic <laughs> THC, would uh, reduce or eliminate uh, the issue of medical cannabis. Uh, it never happened. It never will happen. Similarly, we've got some counterculture people that uh, would just like to free the herb, so <laughs> to speak. Right. And, and forget about these others of commerce, God forbid, a uh, <laughs> company would uh, make money uh, on something that uh, is God-given. Um, but again, those are extremes of philosophy, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree um, completely. And um, there are some, you know, like you alluded to, already examples of how botanicals can be treated in a highly controlled manner. Uh, I mean, one example is looking internationally at, at how, how drugs are handled differently. But even in the United States, I mean, you can get, you know, like a standardized ginkgo biloba extract. Absolutely. Um, and get a prescription for it. Um, right. And when I'm advising patients, you know, I, I indicate just that. Um, the best ginkgo biloba extracts are EGB-61. Yeah, yeah. Uh, these were developed in Germany where they have a thing called Commission E, which is uh, analogous to Food and Drug Administration for herbal products. Um, so these things can be uh, as safe and effective or even more so uh, than uh, new chemical entities and prescription drugs. Yeah, I guess we'll just see how how the FDA decides to to wrap their minds around all of this. Well, I can guarantee it'll be a slow process. Because uh, yeah. the level of understanding is not there, and it's hampered greatly by residual prejudices. Yeah, yeah. I think there was there was an assumption when the Farm Bill passed that all of a sudden CBD was legal, and we we're going to be able to make dietary supplements. And well, yeah. I mean, there's friction in the law. Congress said it's legal. Uh, however, uh, the FDA and the DEA still consider all forms of cannabidiol apart from epidiolex as schedule one forbidden compounds. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the last thing that I've heard privately from folks that are trying to interact with the work working groups with the FDA and CBD is that they're not, they're not very optimistic that the FDA is going to, um, provide much allowance for, um, CBD and dietary supplements and, and foods and that sort of thing. No, we've seen this in Europe already. 
Um, they have a novel foods regulation uh, that basically is uh, eliminated most CBD con containing products from the shelves. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see how it goes. Um, <laughs> uh, before we uh, sign off here, I want to make sure to to uh, get you going. We have a conference to get to and everything. Um, is there anything um, we haven't talked about that in the the last two or three minutes here you want to make sure to share with anybody or even just um, bringing up some of the work you're doing um, that people uh, can learn more? Sure. Well, a big focus of my attention right now is um, trying to educate and I like to use the catch term, making cannabis safer and better. Mm -hmm. uh, and that encompasses a lot of different uh, approaches. But uh, again, I think we need better genetics mm -hmm. uh, for cannabis. This is a very um, malleable plant. Yeah. Uh, we can make it do anything uh, that we want. There is not the need, in my opinion, for uh, genetic modification of cannabis or to make it from yeast. Mm -hmm. um, the full entourage of compounds in cannabis can be uh, optimized by selective breeding uh, without resorting to those other approaches. Um, and uh, the future is very bright in terms of uh, what can be done. Uh, again, I'd emphasize safety standards should be paramount. Um, consumers need to be asking hard questions. Uh, not just of their doctors, yeah. but of the purveyors of these products. Um, and I think uh, marshalling our forces together, we can greatly improve the situation as well as the public health. Yeah, I I totally agree. I I know we still have a long road ahead as far as education goes and everything, um, but there's progress being made all the time. And I Greatly appreciate the work you're doing. I hope our paths cross again. Um, and um, perhaps, you know, maybe sometime in the future we'll be able to do some educating together. Um, thanks so much for being willing to to spend the time this morning to get together and, and talk with me. I've really enjoyed it as I knew I would. And um, I look forward to catching up with you again sometime. My pleasure. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you want to learn more, you can go to CACpodcast.com. Or uh, you can connect with us on social media. Just search for Curious About Cannabis and you'll find us. Uh, thanks so much and have a great day. Take it easy. If you want to learn more about cannabis, you can check out the Curious About Cannabis book. Available now on Amazon.com and other online book retailers. Curious About Cannabis podcast is presented by Natural Learning Enterprises, a science education company dedicated to the enhancement of public scientific literacy through education about the natural world. Curious About Cannabis is just one of several learning initiatives produced by Natural Learning Enterprises. To learn more, go to www.naturallearningenterprises.com or connect with NLE on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.